basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. So this isn't anything that just is limited to the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. This is David Marler, UFO researcher, and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. As always, my name is Andy. Really looking forward to speaking with the guest that I have on with me today. She's not doing too many appearances to promote the upcoming book, which is just released in the UK, so I've not had a chance to read it fully yet, but I have been on Amazon looking at the previews, I've been looking at all the feedback, and I've ordered my copy already. I have co-author of Trinity, The Best Kept Secret, with Jacques Vallée. I have Paola Harris, but I'll be calling her Paula for the for the interview. Paula, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Andy. And yes, I'm not doing a whole bunch. I am exhausted. And what Jacques and I had agreed to do is do a couple together uh, because, you know, uh, uh, the book is done together uh, he based, I was working on it for five years and then he wrote to me about the metal part. And then when I told him about the story for the last four years, we have been going back to New Mexico at least three to four times a year. So, I mean, that's become like a second home to go back on the site, to talk to the witness, to bring scientists down there. So it's been four years. So we agreed that, you know, we would do as many as we could. I think he's really tired right now. And I think he's also going back to Paris. Uh, he has an apartment in Paris and he lives in San Francisco. But Andy, I'm really glad to meet you. You can ask anything you want. I will try to answer for me and for Jacques. And, uh, you know, thank you for reaching out to me. I'm just so happy to meet you. You're Scottish. I am for my sins, yep. Uh, and uh, do you know what? I've only ever had one three-star review on iTunes that complained about my accent, so I'm doing not too bad so far. So I love uh, your accent. In fact, you can interview me anytime you like. You know, I love, I love Ireland. I love Scotland. I've traveled, not for this case, but I'm more well-known in Europe, uh, Andy, because I'm Italian and from 1992 to 2007, I was the principal and taught at the American Overseas School of Rome. I have a, an American uh, connection to Rome in that even though I was born in Italy, my father was a diplomat. I am a teacher, so I have a master's in education. I was teaching Mel Gibson's kids, Ursula Andress's kids at this private school and that allowed me, the money from my teaching allowed me to do the research because there is no money here. A lot of it has gone on. I've never been supported or anything. So I was in Europe from 1992 to 2007. So I was all over the place. I mean, I was going to England. I was going to Greece. I was going to Switzerland. I was in Norway. I, you know, it was like uh, next door to go to these countries. It's a little bit farther from the United States. 
Yeah, it's, it's just a bit, and we've got listeners all over for the podcast as well, so many of them, it sounds like, know you already, given the questions we had in. But before we get to the questions, uh, I'll obviously got some for you as well, Paula. So there's been a lot of interest and intrigue on this book uh, and a little confusion around its release and some changes. But before we get to that, can you just tell the listeners about the book and how it came to be? All right. Well, this is a case. So when Jack and I did this, remember, this is a case study, one case. And I was working on it. I had heard about it when I was living in Italy. Two little Indian boys, but they're not Indian. They're Hispanic, watched a UFO crash, come in, crash over their heads and then went up to the um, crash uh, to the craft and saw the three creatures, the three beings. And then they watched the cleanup or the recovery, which took almost eight days. And so they would be like on the Arroyo looking at the recovery. And then when the soldiers, who were the same soldiers from the atomic bomb, went to the Owl Barn Cafe to get drinks and see the girls, they left it alone. And the nine-year-old boy, the, the Remy was six and Jose was nine. Jose went inside and took a piece, a, a big piece that was... Uh, fastened to the wall of the craft. So we have the location, the witnesses. Of course, we lost Remy in 2013, um, but I found a new witness. So all together, there are three witnesses, all children, and we have the location. So you can, And we have the medal. So we have, and so I was working on it, and I brought the whole world down there. I brought MUFON down there. I brought everybody down there. And... Um, uh, then out of the clear blue sky, I get a, 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 an email from Jacques Vallée saying, I heard you have some metal. So Jacques, who is a scientist, is working on metametals, as you know. And he was very interested in the piece the boy pulled off the wall. But as I'm telling him about the case, he became fascinated with it. And as I was telling you, we have been back to New Mexico. You could see Jacques walking around in the in the fields there. I'm sitting in a chair because I'm afraid of snakes and I've seen so many rattlesnakes and oh, down there. <laughs> so uh, he went down there uh, and I went with him at least, um, you know, three to four times in four years. So total nine years research on one case. And when he went down there, he um saw the framework that this all happened one month after the atomic bomb. So we sat down and had a conversation. Here's the cover of the book. The cover has Mama Grande, who's an Apache Indian, and Jose, the nine-year-old. Mama Grande uh, has a background uh, of in San Antonio, and he talks about the framework, the framework, which is, which is important. You can't just go down there, do a case, and walk away. Pick up a phone, talk to witnesses, and do a case. So he talks about... <clears throat> What those little boys lived like, I mean, the the craft crashed on the Padilla property, which is 80,000 acres, that is rented, uh, is leased from the Bureau of Land Management. This, it is 20 miles from where the bomb exploded. And all this happened one month after the bomb exploded in 1945. So I'm going to add one other thing, and then we can go on to the questions. There was no Kenneth Arnold. There was no flying saucers. 
There was no Roswell. There were no newspapers. There was no YouTube and there was no TV. So when those kids saw the avocado-shaped craft, they did not know what they were looking at. Now, you've held up the cover of the book and this will go out in audio format, but then via video on YouTube uh, in the next couple of weeks as well. The the cover of the book had a little bit of controversy and if you could just explain this, on Amazon for some time and other book websites, there was a different cover of the book that was oh, yeah. a bit simpler and it only had Jacques listed as the author. So there was a lot of rumours, of course, of what the book was going to be. All we knew, it was called The Best Kept Secret. That was it. There was no Trinity, and it was just Jack. What happened that that came down off the website for a day or two? It was uploaded with the new cover and also with yourself attached. Okay, well, The Best Kept Secret is that it had to be kept secret. If you look at the cover, there's a map on there. And he didn't want people going to the location before the book came out. Because then the whole, the whole world would go down to New Mexico. I mean, you could see where it is on this map. So he wanted a, a, uh, a innocuous cover where they would not be studying this whole thing before we even got the book out. Plus, we had just encountered a third witness. So we had to rewrite the book. I think we redid it at least seven times. Uh, and what, what uh, he did was he included Sabrina. Now, Sabrina uh, was Jose, the nine-year-old's cousin who lived with the father. We just found her. She just verified all kinds of amazing things, like she was playing with the fiber optics and the foil, the foil, long strips of foil that would crunch up and go back. Uh, 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 Jose didn't know that because he had no foil. But the father did. He went back to the crash site and picked up foil, and the little girl that was living with them was playing with this. So all this new material, we had to re-release the book. And when we re-released the book, now that map is on there and more detail is on there. I mean, we're still hoping to protect the witness and the location. So he decided, let's just wait. Let's re-release it with the new testimony. The new testimony is at least 35 pages. So we got a complete product now. Did I answer your question? In a- now, in a recent... In a, uh, uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that clears it up. And you, you know this subject better than, than many. And there was a lot of conspiracy around. It was taken down because it was there was too big a secret within it. But it was just a placeholder cover. That's all, you, all you're saying. And that's why it was. And that, that makes sense to me. And I'm sure the listeners will appreciate that as well. Now, uh, I watched your interview with James from Engaging the Phenomenon. And I would encourage anyone who hasn't yet to go on YouTube uh, and watch that interview. Uh, and it's got Jacques on there with you. During that interview, Jacques describes the case as not being as sexy as Roswell uh, and his, his own French way. But for you, what made it so compelling? Because uh, all you've said there, Paula, that it's got the materials, it's got witnesses, it's got a crash, you know, the it's location. got beings. Yeah, yeah it's got. Location. I mean, it's got it all. Uh, it's funny, uh, you know, Andy, you're using that word sexy because I was thinking about that all day today. Um, you know, because the truth is, that the way ufology is now, the only thing that goes viral is 60 minutes of TV show or conspiracy theory or things that are being hidden or government cover-up. This is a case study. I mean, you would have to read it 
and and learn a lot about the history of the atomic bomb and uh, the fact that Oppenheimer would have had to know the Owl Barn Cafe is four miles from this place. And the Owl Barn Cafe, which is on the Pan American Highway, was the only watering hole. And that's even where the, the kids, the young guys that cleaned up the crash went on that last day. That's the only place they could go. There was a soda fountain. There was a grocery store. And behind the Owl Barn Cafe were the headquarters of the scientists, the the Manhattan Project, you know Oppenheimer, um, uh, all Fermi, Enrico Fermi, all the top secret guys. And I asked the owners of that cafe, "Did you know what they were doing?" And they said, "No, we thought they were salesmen because they came in with their leather briefcases, and we thought they were salesmen." Now, you imagine keeping a secret that you're you're going to blow. Uh, uh, a, an amazingly powerful weapon about 20 miles away. And as Jacques explained in that other interview, that was no test. That was a regular, uh, you know, bomb, uh, you know, it wasn't a test. It was regularly exploding a bomb. And what they didn't do is they didn't tell the people. So people like Jose's mom, the nine-year-old's mom, opens the door at three in the morning and she sees the light of a, a thousand suns. Can you imagine that described? There is a book called The Light of a Thousand Suns. And she's blinded in one eye. And Jose, is, his eardrum is punctured. And I'm not even going to go into what happened to the 70,000 people that didn't know this was going to happen. Because this is a twofold book. This tells of the explosion of the bomb, the fact that nobody knew. The fact that even the cattle were taken to Oak Ridge to be tested. The fact that I'm sure Oppenheimer knew after the, uh, uh, the crash because he was right there. And Oppenheimer and Einstein actually wrote a letter to Truman saying, hey, we got problems when we started messing with atomic energy because we're getting a lot of sightings here. We're getting a lot of sightings. What do we do now? And logically, I mean, beyond this book, would people understand that we went into the nuclear age and somebody was watching? Somebody out there uh, was watching and wanted to make a statement. So wh whatever those creatures were or whatever that uh, crash happened, I think was the statement to uh, the um, starting of the nuclear age. I think when you start to explode a bomb in our dimension, there's no way it doesn't affect other dimensions. There's no way. And, um, you know, we went on, and I did research in Italy on this. This was one of the most dangerous stories I ever did. I went on to interview people in the Pacific that were working on the H-bomb, which was much more powerful than the A-bomb. That's the only time they ever came into my apartment on the seventh floor in Rome and took everything, including the film footage, and stole 20000 euro worth of materials from my house. I, uh, you know, the man that I was interviewing at the time was a French geophysicist uh, who was on the island of Fungatofa and saw the UFOs fly over on two different occasions. So let me assure you, somebody is watching. 
Now, you, you said very concisely there that someone is watching. Yourself and Jack have said in previous interviews that this was a response or a message from that explosion. Now, the time frame for me is interesting that it was one month after that explosion, that nuclear explosion, that this object appeared to have crashed. Now, do you feel there's any significance to the fact it was one month had passed? Or is that one month has passed for us, but when you mention different dimensions... Is it a case that it wasn't necessarily a month that's passed for the beings or the object? Wow, Andy, you're jaxing me now. You're making me think. I never thought about that. I never thought about that, really. I will tell you that there's some really weird things about this case in that they only appeared to children, little kids. So the one, so the little kids, they're little kids, they're six and nine. And, of course, Jose, by that time, was driving a truck. He was delivering hamburger to the Owl Bar and Cafe. He had his own horse. So did Remy. They were fixing windmills. They were fixing fences. In those days, the the kids were part of the ranch from, from when they were tiny, tiny. And Sabrina was telling me, too. She said she'd take a walk. She'd go over to the crash site. It was all burned. She said the vegetation. But the vegetation, after 70 years, has not come back. They used to, those mesquite trees were like four to five feet high. Now they're like one foot high. So the fact that, number one, we could have disturbed a dimension and maybe it was, uh, you know, a, a response. Number two, that they appeared to children. In other words, children. When those two kids saw the crash come over their head, I mean, it took out part of a radio tower. They were, it was, there was a thunderstorm, so they had stopped. You can read the book in detail. They both told me the same story. They do not live close to each other after all those years, but they told me the same story. They stopped. They saw the thunderstorm. The craft came in, took out a piece of the radio tower and landed, you know, took an L shape and landed and stopped where a berm was, but it was fully powered. And when they went up there with their little binoculars, you know, I think it was like 500 feet away, they stood and watched those beings for almost an hour, an hour and a half. Like they're watching these creatures going, you know, uh, uh, Jose said they were sashaying, which means they were kind of floating. They'd appear here and then they appear there. There were three of them. And then Jose felt that they were crying. He, he said it was like a screechy baby and he wanted to go in and help. He said, they're hurt, they're hurt. He kept saying, they're hurt. This is a response of children. It wouldn't be a response of adults. Adults would go in there with a rifle and just kill them all. Because <laughs> we finished the whole thing, you know, but these kids are, they're not used to seeing anything like this. And then the six-year-old later on told me that uh, before dying, that he had a vision that they had given him of people falling out of a skyscraper and he's never seen skyscrapers because he was living in New Mexico. Now that sounds an awful lot like 9-11 to me. So, you know, we've got communication, psychic communication with these kids and their kids. Now we've got a craft that is either flying a great distance or traveling a distance through dimension, space, whatever it may be, we're not sure. How does it still come to crash in inverted commas and, or even make contact with a radio tower, given what must be an incredibly advanced technology? Well, you know, even with Roswell, the storms in New Mexico are like nothing I've ever seen. Nothing. Um, 
the thunder and lightning is just terrible. And I've been in Mexico South and I've been to Roswell and so forth. And also with the Roswell crash, it was a storm. However, I think where you're going, Andy, is was it done on purpose? Um, yeah. And I, you know, I can't tell you that because I don't know that you don't know that, but that's a great question. Was it done on purpose so we would report about it? Um, so it would catch our attention. I do know that that particular case did not go into the Blue Book files. Where it went is into the files of the Atomic Energy Commission, which is what was going on down there. And I know that because Remy worked for the governor of Washington State. He was a gig harbor. Whose, her name was Dixie Lee. And he helped get her elected to, to governorship. So to thank him, she let him see the file. And, and she was the head of the Atomic Energy Commission stuff in, in uh, Washington State. And the, if you know anything and, and you listen to, I think that Jacques talked about this in James's, the Atomic Energy Commission does not answer to the president. Uh, that's one of the, the agencies that, you know, unless you have a need to know. Um, but may I encourage people, because you work together, that they also see James's, um, you know, interview with Jacques, because I think he said that. Um, however, I found out about that because Remy told me that. He said, oh, well, she thanked me. She, she let me see my case, uh, you know, and, and would never have gone into the Air Force. There was no Air Force. It was Army Air Force in 1945. It would never got into Blue Book because it was I didn't start that then. So where's it going to go? Uh, and as far as taking the the craft to Wright Patterson, we think it, they took it to Los Alamos. And is, would you say this was the first known crash of an a craft from somewhere else, especially on on that type of land? Obviously, we know about Roswell not too not too soon after, but was this the first time that the the army had dealt with anything like this? No, because uh, you know I I I read a. a books all my colleagues books i'm the only one <laughs> ryan wood wrote a, an incredible book called magic eyes only i don't have it here and it's got 93 crashes and he has the cape gerardo i think crash as being the first one and that's way before and i think there was a crash in texas and that's way before it was even in the 1800s this one was the first one that we have enough information to deal with the cape gerardo they have like i think torn up road or they have pieces we have witnesses we have the location and we have the metal so <laughs> we this is the first crash before roswell where we have everything roswell yeah we have witnesses but it wasn't in other words they wouldn't were those witnesses weren't there when it crashed they have witnesses to the recovery these kids were there when it crashed and they watched their recovery for, it took a long time. In fact, they had to put it on a flatbed truck, an 18 wheeler because there's an overpass near there and they had to get it through the overpass. So to get it out. So, so um, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> My phone is ringing, but uh, it, it, we'll just let That's it go. That's all right. Okay. Uh, uh, so, you, you've mentioned, well, you've mentioned the met, the metal a few times. Uh, yeah. Do you want to talk about the metal itself and tell the listeners about it, its properties, what your experiences are with the metal? So that's Jacques' uh, forte. What had happened was that I was working with um, uh, Jose, and he had mentioned, <laughs> this is in the book, 
they saw one little piece of foil. So Rami took it as a souvenir and they fixed a windmill with it later. So I said, oh my God, you know, the foil's gone. Then I find Sabrina had long strips of it in her, in the grandfather's house. So he must've gone back and got it because she thought it was toys. They didn't have slinkies back then. So she's got these long strips of foil and she's scrunching up and then it goes back to it's, this is in 1950, like 1950. And, and of course we asked where it all was and 70 years have passed. So we don't know where it is. Um, and the piece that, um, uh, that Jose went in there to get because they wanted a tesoro. In those days, they wanted a souvenir. They, they knew what they saw, but they go, let's take a souvenir. But, you know, he was, uh, even today, you know, uh, Jose uh, went to the Korean War at 17 years old and then became a state trooper in, in, uh, in California he, where he was even shot at. Jose has no uh, fear of anything. <laughs> he went in there, he took a crowbar, and the only thing on the wall was this piece. So he just pulled it out. It was like locked in with a pin. And it was like more of a, a snap-in thing. There were no nails or anything. It was more snap-in. And he took it and they hid it under the floorboards. And they hid it under the floorboards of the sheep herder. And then later they had to move it because the army came and asked if the kids had stolen anything, had taken anything. There's a couple of funny things about this case. First of all, the army asked Mr. Padilla, the father, if they could cut the gate because they were taking out a weather balloon. And it wasn't, the gate was too narrow. So even now you can see where they cut the gate to take out the weather balloon. But the father and Jose went to the bunkhouse and gave them back all the weather balloons they had collected while they were riding around on their horses because they returned them to the army. So they knew this isn't a weather balloon. Here's, you know, here's all the ones we got for you guys. You want it back? You know, and this thing was like, I think Jacques said it was like five tons. So it's no weather balloon. So they made a road, especially to take it out. And the piece itself was hidden for many years. And after I had worked on it for five years, Jose gave it to me. I put it in a safe deposit box. By the time Jacques got to me, I just gave it to him. I said, look, take this to a university and go analyze it. And it is a kind of aluminum. I think he called it selenium. Uh, uh, there is a name. That, it's in the book. And I think he, he also says what it is. Uh, and, and it looks like a terrestrial piece. It is not a piece of a windmill. Although it resembles that I went to a windmill factory. I did the interview with the owner who's owned it for like 80 years. He said that is not a piece of any windmill or any, because the windmill factory is actually a warehouse. You can buy pieces. It was not, it is not. And windmill pieces are cast iron. This thing's aluminum. So, um, are they still studying it? Yes. Is it in the hands of a university? Yes. Is it in the hands of scientists? Yes. It's been studied in Australia. They did, in fact, uh, James Rigney that worked on this with me uh, asked permission to release the uh, the analysis in Australia because a lot of people worked on this with me. Um, and could there be rare properties? We don't know. We don't know yet. But it was inside the craft. Now, were there any issues, and I don't want to go into too much detail because we want people to go and read the book and get the detail for themselves and see that picture in their head. However, 
the the kids when they picked up this metal were there any issues with exposure to radiation they picked up from it or did they have any ill effects and and soon after or later life no they had ill effects from the bomb no they had the radiation that came i mean it is 20 miles from ground zero san antonio is 20 miles from ground zero you can see where they exploded the bomb from that land it is from trinity now the, the the problems they have came from the bomb not from the craft um did they ever see the beings again? No, because the next day, see, the boys went and told the father, and the father and Sheriff Apodaca, they waited a day, then they went, and they saw that the craft was there. It had been covered by brush, because I think they were trying to hide it, the army, and they went inside. They went inside. I mean, they walked around in there, and since Faustino and Sheriff Apodaca are, mis- are now uh, dead, we can't really talk to them. I know that Jose is, uh, his relatives are relatives of Lani Zamora's. And, you know, the Lani Zamora case, which Heineck worked on, is down the street. It's very close. And that also had to do with an egg-shaped craft, because this craft was not a flying saucer. It was avocado-shaped. Um, and, you know, Jose, everybody's relatives with everybody there. I mean, it's like small town. I spent so much there time there that I know everybody and everybody knows Jock and me. And we go to lunch with everybody. And it's that kind of situation. Um, but the Lonnie Zamora case is also covered in this book and the Valsol case in France because they are all very similar. So what Jacques looks for is patterns. So the book itself is written by a very wonderful writer who's able to find patterns and has an incredible style. Um, My job, uh, quite frankly, was just to do the interviews. I had piled up the interviews and audio tape uh, before I even started working with Jacques. So I had the audio tape and the transcripts. So he just basically reread all the transcripts, tried to put them in some kind of order and put them in the book to describe what happened. In your and Jack's research, were there any rumours or conjecture as to what may have happened with the beings? This was something quite a few listeners asked me to follow up on as well, that, as you say, the kids went the next day and the beings were gone. Was it a case that they, you know, they've just disappeared, that no one knows, or whether were they taken? Well, I can only tell you, this is just me, this is Paula Harris, since I... Uh, published and dealt with Clifford Stone for many years, and that was crash retrieval. And Clifford Stone just died. Before he died, I went to Roswell. He lived in Roswell, and I asked him about what happened to the beings uh, in his particular situation. He did 12 retrievals, recoveries. And he said that they came and got their own. Sometimes they left the bodies out there, and they came and got their own. I said, you're kidding. And he goes, I said, you mean you didn't like pack the bodies and take them to right? He said, no, sometimes we made an agreement. We would leave the bodies there and they would come and get their own. And uh, and we have to ask about those bodies, you know, the description. They could be an advanced form of artificial intelligence of a clone. They were, uh, you know, uh, tall, gray. No, they weren't tall. They were uh, three feet tall, but they were gray 
kind of insectoid looking because they had long arms. In fact, Jose said they, they look like a standing up fire ant, teardrop eyes and gray outfit or gray uh, bodysuit. And, you know, they could have been some kind of clone or some kind of artificial intelligence or whatever, but whatever they were, they did interact with the kids. They did since uh, Jose felt he had a, he wanted to go in there and help them. He said he wasn't afraid. He just he was very confused because it looked like children like they did. And he wanted to go in and give and give him a hand. But the six year old began to cry. But he said Remy began to cry, too, because his eyes hurt. Because when you have burning mosquito all around, it's an uncomfortable uh, situation. It's smoke and mosquito. And um, so but Jose says to me, he's kidding all the time. He says, Paula, if I had gone in there, you probably wouldn't see me today. I wouldn't be around to tell the story. <laughs> and I said, Jose, that would be a big shame because I, I just love Jose. He's in his 80s. He's got what he's got. I can't believe it is a photographic memory. He can remember the day you ask him if it's a tw- it's a Thursday, tw- uh, Tuesday. I mean, he re- he looks up and he remembers details that I could never, and I don't even know what I was doing when I was nine. He knows, knows everything. He knows who he spoke to. He knows everything. So we have in this book a photographic memory, uh, and then we have the other testimony of Remy. Now, some classic cases over the years, parts of the story have changed now and again. Um, do you agree uh, with those that say this is no exception, that there has been some details that have changed or not? Uh, and I'll just give you a quick quote. So on Grant Cameron's 60 Minutes after show panel, this was sent in by one of the listeners, uh, Roswell researcher Don Schmidt claimed that he was approached by one of the witnesses 25 years ago and was given an entirely different account. And he believes that it's been changed now and he would want to know why. Do, do you agree with that or would you totally refute that? I disagree because they were kids. They're all children. They they couldn't make it up if they tried. I mean, you know, there was no frame of reference. There's no TV. There's no YouTube. There's no nothing. There's uh, no, nothing has changed. Uh, they may, I don't know. I'm trying to remember. The only thing I think Jose told me he picked that, up. That would be, that would be late nineties. I think Don saying it late nineties, one of the witnesses approached him. So they would have been what fifties at that point. Um, and had given them an account that was different to now. I don't no. have any more details on that, but that was what, what Don claimed on Grant no, Cameron's kids, panel. No, the, the kids never changed their story ever. I mean, things like Jose told me he picked he picked up the uh, the the piece of um, uh, what do you call a foil, and then uh, uh, Remy says he picked up the piece of foil, but it's still a piece of foil. It doesn't matter who picked it up. <laughs> he picked, they picked up a piece of foil. The piece of foil is picked up. One says he picked it up. The other one says he picked it up. Those those are details that are ridiculous that they may change, but there was a piece of foil they picked up, so we know that for sure. In all the time, and I have both of them on video from 2000 and, well, let's see, I did it 2013 on. They, I have video of them off and on. Nothing's changed. But again, I'm saying there's no case with kids. 
with children, with with nine year old that is very sophisticated, and a six year old that is very sophisticated. Because in those days, they had to take care of the ranch. They were like the men of the family. The men had gone to war. There is no case like this. It isn't like you know, they lived it. It was their reality, so they can't change it because they lived it. You know, it's it's what they remember from. And it's funny because when they're telling you that, they're reliving it again. Uh, they they certainly weren't making it up. It was traumatic for them. But the thing on a psychological level is they had nothing to compare it to. There was nothing. There was no, you know, Kenneth Arnold was two years later with Flying Saucers. And uh, Roswell was two years later. And there's no magazines and there's no TV and they just thought it was a plane crash, but it was not an airplane. I think when it comes to witnesses, just my personal, when it comes to the, those little details, what I've always got to say is I've not spoken to any of these witnesses for any cases, so I don't know. But if you look back at my my wedding was eight years ago. And if you ask me to recall the day of the wedding, I can remember bits and pieces. If you ask my wife to recall the same wedding, she will remember the same stuff. But there might be little bits and pieces that I think I done, or I remember I gave this cake to such and such. And she would say, no, I done that. It's not that we're lying. We're just remembering it slightly differently because as time passes, that's what happens. And that's not to justify in the past when people have lied about these things, but it's very easily done and it can happen. So that's why I'm, I I never poo poo a case based on a very small detail changing because I think if anything, it's harder to keep a story straight with so many specific details it's natural that these things change very slightly so that's just food for thought for people yeah but let me tell you historically uh, this is not a ufo book this is a history book yeah. so uh because remy at that time had diabetes uh i could not get film footage but who got film footage was swiss television they went and flew to gig harbor high definition television interview so i care that we have two versions so being you know italian i went and spoke i I spoke in northern italy in turin and i got on a plane on a train in milano and i went past lake como where george Clooney lives and i went to lugano i got the film footage i have it here anything that we do we have both witnesses i cannot do a story with one witness but that's a lot of trouble for me and a lot of money out of my pocket to be a go traveling to get the film footage of the original uh, other person because we need both. Plus, Remy wrote a book called "Born at the Edge," uh, 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 "Born in Ground Zero on the Edge of Area Fifty One or something that you can't get anymore. So Jacques took that book, his own memories, uh, Remy's own memories, his own words. So there is. An, it's like word for word what these kids said. It's not our interpretation of any of it. It's them. It's their story. Uh, frameworked around what was going on at the time. Uh, I really care that people understand this is a history book. Something happened when the atomic bomb exploded. It, it affected the whole town. But I, I feel that it's more of a history book than a UFO book. and. Because an incident happened that I think has extraordinary significance for humanity. And I care more about that than I do about, like, the metal. 
but Jacques cares about all of it. He cares about the medal too. But I care about the statement that was made. You mentioned the children and how unique that is. That And there's an innocence to a child's recollection of an event because it, it tends to be very truthful. Uh, and we've got like the aerial school f- phenomena event that happened and that was documented in the phenomenon documentary what do you think the significance is of these objects and beings like this appearing near or next to children that's an incredible a question andy because every time i see the aerial plus the westall and i help james fox with that uh, uh i i knew james rigney i put them together he did the australian case because of me i i consulted so many films. If you look at even Stephen Greer's films, I I do a lot of consulting. For me, the most moving part of those movies are the kids. I mean, the end of uh, uh, the, the, the aerial case and the phenomena. Oh my God. I mean, those children aren't making anything up. They don't even know how to, (laughs) they can't, they don't even know how to express what they saw. Poor kids. I mean, I'm watching them draw these things. Like, it seems like, they're very honest. That's what they saw. They, they're going to draw them exactly what they saw. And this case, they're children too. They're children. They're going to draw exactly what it looked like to them. Even if they are in their 70s and 80s, this is what they saw. Now, with that ability to retell accurately and truthfully, we touched earlier on the potential that these incidents aren't crashes and that they may happen deliberately. I would just like you, Paula, to quickly touch on what uh, the gifting field is for people that may or may not have heard of that term. I I don't know what that term is, if you wanted to. Oh, so the, the, the gift field, the gifting, yes. the gifting. Yeah, sorry, okay. I think that was my bad Scottish accent. Okay, yeah. Now, gifting. Um, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot because then, you know, I sat down and I said, you know, these kids, first of all, the first time that story was told was told to Timothy Good. It's in Timothy Good's book. And Jacques even mentioned the book it's in. So Timothy Good, who I consider one of the best, if not the best researcher on the planet, because he does feel research, he goes to the place, went to Gig Harbor, Washington and talked to Remy. And it's in his book. And he's also got metal um, uh, analysis in his book. And then Ryan Wood put it in his book, Magic Eyes Only. And then I get there. And then Jacques gets there. And I'm thinking to myself, did those beings know what we were going to do? Did those beings know that whatever was, you know, that, action back and if there is no time and space did, could they have known that eventually this would come out and it would talk about the atomic bomb as being one of the changing historical events for this planet and that we ought to look at the damage that nuclear has done could they have known that we would do this, that we would do this book? Because it's going to make people think, that's for sure. The idea that we are playing with nuclear and playing kind of a chess game that no one will win. The only way we can do these war games is to checkmate. You know, I got it, you got it, we checkmate. 
we can't put the genie back in the bottle. We can't uninvent. And the atomic bomb was not as bad as the H-bomb, which, you know, when I told you I had those problems uh, with that story, and he was French, there was 800 H-bomb tests done in the Pacific, 800. And we did more. America did them in the Atlantic. This is insanity. I'm not surprised somebody's flying over the H-bomb testing because we're killing all the fish and all the coral and all the oceans and all this stuff. I mean, there's a message here. Are you people insane? And and you can't put nuclear back in the bottle. I mean, you can't. I mean, once it's out there. And everybody will say, well, we needed to do that to stop World War II, especially Jacques is brilliant about talking about the uh, Japanese, the Japan um, surrender and how we had to do that with Nakazaki. He's brilliant because he read all the books and then I would read them. He'd say, did you read Children of Trinity? And I'd say, no, and I'd buy it. And they say, did you read this? And, and I'd say, no. And he got all the details and I'd buy the book. So that's when I want to tell your, your viewers, this for me isn't a UFO book. This is like, what the heck are we doing on this planet? And uh, what are we doing? And it it's, can't get any better uh, because, you know, the weapons are more sophisticated and they're worse. And so whatever was watching back then, is it watching now? I mean, is it watching the insanity now? I mean, you know, those beings, they they actually communicated mentally with the kids in that they, you know, looked at them for at least an hour. I mean, it isn't like they, they glimpsed at them. They were communicating. And then those kids consequently come to us and we do the story. I think you've answered what was going to be my next question is what do you want people to take away from the book? But what I'd like to ask you is what place does this event the Trinity event have for you now within the UFO lore or, or history, as you say? Well, it's probably the most complete story I've ever done. Nine years is a long time. And if Jacques and I, if Jacques hadn't come on board and we had talked about it, and I really want to encourage people to work together. I mean, it would have been nice if all the Roswell researchers would work together at a table and put together the mosaic and everybody, all the researchers would work together. It wasn't until he came along that I even saw what was going on because he had the framework. He had the framework. I had the details. He had the framework. He said, you you have the, the colors and I have the canvas. And we did it. And the... If I hadn't kept going, if we hadn't kept going uh, four months ago, I would have never found the third witness. And it happened by accident. We were sitting, Jacques and I were outside sitting at Jose's. He has like a mobile home and Jose was talking about the old days. He's got a photographic memory. He knows everybody he'll name who died and who had five kids and all this. We're listening to all of this. And then all at once he says, well, my niece was with my father, living with my father and mother, and she saw the fiber optics. And I said, what? And where's your niece? And he said, Los Angeles. And Jacques and I looked at each other and we said, is she still alive? And he said, yes. So we flew to Los Angeles to question her. And she had a story that she, that even Jose didn't know about. She, I mean, she was in the house. so." We found out that at seven years old, the father went back out there and got other stuff that Jose didn't know he had done. 
So we're going, oh my God, if we hadn't like kept going on this story, we would have never found the third witness. So research is not one and a half years. We're a nine year mark here, the nine year. And then Jack keeps saying, I said, well, it's over. We've wrote, written the book. Everything's, he goes, no, no, it's not over. We, we don't know what's going to come out of the woodwork. So research Real field research, not gossip. But when you're getting your, you have to worry about snakes. We even dug. We, I mean, I know, can't even tell you how many snakes I, I mean, the whole New Mexico. I've been to Ground Zero twice. It's only open once a year. And I've been, you know, I went in there. There's a, a, a black monolith where they exploded the bomb. And when I went in there the first time, the the sand was all green because green glass because it had fused with the power of that radiation. It became fused. It looked like um, emeralds all over the ground. The second time when I went with Jacques, it, there wasn't that much of it there, but you live, you live the life of the uh, atomic testing there. You you can see Oppenheimer. You can see those scientists trying to figure out what's going on. You can see the, the McDonald, I think it was called the McDonald farm that they put there to see how it would blow. You can feel it. In fact, at a certain point, the dust was so heavy and I didn't feel well, I, I had to ask to leave. But uh, again, Andy, the thing about this book you asked me about is I lived this case and this case changed the world. It showed us that somebody is interested and I'm not going to say who it is. I don't know what the story is with ETs or anything, but somebody was watching. So if somebody's watching here in 1945, I'm convinced somebody's watching everywhere. (laughs) Well, listen, that probably moves us on nicely. Just before listener questions for me to ask, the books came out at an incredibly opportune time, one that I, I doubt you could have predicted unless yourself or Jacques had some foresight. Uh, just in the last week or two, we've had a lot of mainstream media coverage of the subject, the topic. Louise Elizondo, Chris Mellon, um, Alex Dietrich, David Fravor, Ryan Graves have been on 60 Minutes, CBS News, uh, various different shows around the world. How do you feel the book coming out now fits in with with what's going on? Do you feel it accompanies and it's coming out at a good time? Or do you feel this has its separate place? Well, I'd like to deviate from that question a bit. I don't understand why sightings, whether they be next to an aircraft carrier or anything, when we know this is real. I don't think disclosure needs to come out of any government agency. Um especially if you've been in the field like 40 years like I have. I've covered so many stories, you name it. I've been all over the map, and Latin America for me is the most fertile ground. Um, 60 years ago, we had Kenneth Arnold seeing, you know, craft over Mount Rainier, and everybody took him seriously because he was a pilot, and the whole world went crazy. I don't see the difference between 60 years ago and now. So if he sees craft and we think he's, and we, and he is, he's credible because he's a pilot. And then the whole world, you know, front page, their UFOs are real over Mount Rainier. What's the difference between that? And, you know, the only difference is that the New York Times covers, covers it now and mainstream media will cover it. But we're still at the sighting stage. We're still at, we don't know where it is, where, why they're there, you know. 
So far, nobody's bombed anybody. But again, I'm going to present a question to your audience. Somebody's watching. What are they watching? Nobody's bombed anybody. I mean, are you kidding? If they were going to kill us, they should have done it back in ground zero. 150 mile radius of radiation, 70,000 people were affected. You know, if, if they thought we were insane, it could have happened back then. Why in the world would it happen now? I mean, what's the difference? 60, 70 years have passed. I don't think this is a national threat, but you have to look at the agenda. It's still sightings. It's still, and I, and I predict, I'm going to go on your show, predict that the conflict between Israel and Palestine, there's going to be sightings. And during Vietnam, that's when Clifford Stone said they had the most activity. Three of his retrieval cases were in Vietnam. So what are they on vacation in Vietnam? It's like, <laughs> you know, are they on vacation well, I, in New Mexico? They decide, no. let's go and see this planet. We're going to New Mexico. We're going to Vietnam. We're going to Russia. We're going, you know, it's, it's just logic. It's logic. Whatever is happening is happening to get our attention. And I don't necessarily feel like that's a huge story when disclosure doesn't necessarily come out that way. It comes out from meticulous research, reading some books, not all YouTube, but reading some books, looking at the scenario. And I'm going to finish by saying, put together the puzzle, the mosaic. There is a mosaic here and it is not an American mosaic. It's a universal mosaic because even Russia has had some incidents potentially it's a multi-universal mosaic yes. um, but what i would ask then because one thing one thing that and i agree that throughout different periods of history and i'm 35 so i've only seen so much of it and i'm i'm far newer in what i do in this topic than your people like yourself and jack but one thing that is happening in the background just now that hasn't been happening in the past is we've got the senate task force report potentially about to come out do you feel that's going to move anything forward at all in terms of the conversation well, for who? We're having the conversation anyway. You and me are having a conversation. Everybody's having a conversation. My kids are having a conversation. New York Times having a conversation. If there's a task force, what I'm most worried about is the agenda. I mean, why? So that we can get appropriations for some kind of exotic weapons to shoot at them? What is the agenda here? I, it isn't to tell the people, I don't think. It isn't like, okay, we're going to tell the truth finally all these years. <laughs> We've not told the truth, so we have a guilty conscience. No, there is an agenda. The, would people please get a clue? Nobody does anything without an agenda. I mean, and if the agenda is one where it becomes a national threat, so that we can get appropriations. You know, that's what we did with our wars. You know, I, I just talked to Carol Rosen, who said, Werner von Braun said, this is the last card. Well, it'd be stupid because these beings have been around forever and they haven't done anything. So what, 2021, they're going to do something? You know, it's, we need to use our brains here. There is an agenda. And unfortunately, I'm not aware of what it is, but I'm certainly not thinking this is any kind of disclosure. Like what? They just decide they're going to tell the truth. I mean, we already know. We talked to everybody. I've talked to 
Colonel Corso was my main, um, uh, probably the big story I ever did because I brought Colonel Corso to Italy because he couldn't speak here. There was a lawsuit against his book. So uh, spending a lot of time with Colonel Philip Corso, I realized, and he was, you know, Pentagon research and development, that the real secret was being secret because of the, uh, the, the, the technology. Nobody cares about the, uh, the creatures, the, the inside, who's in there or why they're here. The technology, the technology is the secret. So if Colonel Corso is telling the truth in 1998, what are we doing in two, 2021 thinking it's real? He told the truth in, in uh, the day after Roswell. Um, you know, I've dealt with the former defense minister of Canada who, who called about Corso's book, uh, Clifford Stone. I mean, so many. Uh, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, the astronaut, was my good friend. We, we had a long conversations for me, disclosure is for him talking about this. What about Gordon Cooper? That's disclosure. Gordon Cooper said I, he saw a landing during a test. Well, you mean the only kind of disclosure we think is disclosure is, is when we see gun camera footage? You know, people that have been following this know that we have had some brave people tell the truth. I don't think they're going to make a, nas- a statement. Now, they can. You can get some reports and you get a batch of reports saying, you know, we've had these vehicles around us. Yeah, forever. But again, I just uh, painted you a scenario of who's watching. Who's watching? Why are they watching? They're not on vacation. There's a lot I could go into and talk about, but that would be selfish because I have a ton of listener questions here and I know we're short on time. So if we could get through as many with your answers being as quick as possible, that would be great for the listeners, Paula. Um, A lot of really good stuff there, though. Thank you. Uh, First question was from Tyler. He asks, uh, Paula, yourself and Jack had purchased a piece of metal from the craft from another person. How did that person obtain the metal and how did you verify that the piece of metal was the same piece the kids took from the craft? We never purchased anything. Nobody sold anything. First of all, you got to get off of that. I mean, there's a lot of you know misinformation. When Remy was alive, he wanted to sell it. He never sold it. He hung on to it. And then Jose got it and Jose gifted it to me. He gifted it. I put it in my safety deposit box for two years. Uh, this is not about making money. I, I didn't know. So what there was to no do cash. Yeah. No, I didn't know what to do with it. I thought oh, it's there. What am I going to do? I don't know what to do with it. And then Jacques came along and he said, "I have, I have a lab. I have some labs uh, that'll." And we had cut a piece off and given it to Jaime Malsan in Mexico, so he had had it. And James Rigney took it back to Australia. So we cut some pieces off. Nobody, we didn't buy anything from anybody. It, so where is it now at a university? It will be seen by the general public in 10 years after we're gone. And it is gifted to a university. Nobody's buying this stuff. This is for the, this is for the people. The whole story is not ours. It's the people's story. So what Next did he question, ask? Next question, Paula, from Craig. How do you know it's real? Because they hit it. They hit it. I mean, they hit it. I mean, when I talked to Sabrina, she told me where they hit it. She watched them hide it. And she goes, they went behind the bunkhouse and they made this hole and they hit it. And I knew this is the third winner. She said, I was watching them and they hit it. And they hit it. But they didn't talk about it because they took it. 
you're not supposed to take anything from the inside of a craft, you know, <laughs> they could, the kids are going, Oh my God, you know, we stole, they didn't steal it. They, they just took it. Okay. They took it. <laughs> so the next question from Craig, and I feel this is a, a question that's really pertinent for yourself as well. How did you feel about the community response when the book was being announced a few weeks ago? And a lot of the, the comments, Paula, were, were aimed at yourself because your name suddenly became attached to that. Did you feel any attack from when things seemed to change for people? That's This is a personal question. I've been attacked uh, and I'm kind of hurt because I've been working for 40 years with the top level people. I've written five books, all witness testimony. Um and done a good job. I don't know what's going on, so I can't give you any hypothesis, but I did my job. And um, what came out was, you know, that I needed Jacques Vallée to verify my work and that, you know, that I, you know, that I need all these things, that it was a piece of a windmill, that I was peddling a story. And these are all jealous, cruel people that are out there. And unfortunately I brought a lot of them to the crash site before I met Jacques and people, you know, are not nice. I find the UFO community is not nice. They're not nice. Jacques didn't want to say anything until we got the cover, the real cover. And he was no, he was nervous that if we put that out there, that everybody rushed there without even reading the book, because the cover has a map on it. So I agreed with him that he would put his, his, but I was always involved. I was always involved from gray one, from day one. He just did the Joe Rogan show with that. But afterwards, you know, he, he, he told the world that it was both of our stories. What I didn't like is that people who are ignorant, actually Jacques Vallée came to me. He wrote to me. I didn't, I didn't, I started working with Alan Hynek for six years, and after he died, I swore, I, you know, because I really suffered. I suffered when Alan Hynek died. I had never met Jacques Vallée. In my later years, I'd never met him. I didn't even look for him. Uh, out of the clear blue sky, he writes about the metal. He wants to know about the metal. So that's how I connected with Jacques Vallée. He wrote to me. Uh, he didn't even know I worked for Alan, I don't think. But, uh, you know, so the... It's hurtful to have gossip and then insinuate that, that the only way it gets story out is by hooking up with Jacques. This was a kind of thing I think the ETs knew that we the only way we could tell the story is to have the framework of the atomic bomb and everything around it and the analysis of the metal. It had to be complete. So, yeah, that was a very personal question. I don't like the – that's one of the reasons, Andy, I don't like doing um, – the UFO sphere. I mean, it's not very nice sometimes. And I'm extremely professional. I am not a media star. I do not go on television. I am not paid, you know, but I love the investigative part. Somebody says, what do you love about this? It's like a detective. I mean, I just found a witness about six months ago. I'm so excited. I love doing the work. And there is no uh, support. I've never had anybody support it. Uh, it's come out of my pocket. My children are angry. They want me to go to the Bahamas and sit in a hotel and drink Mai Tais. And they say, you're out of your mind, mom. And I say, no, this is so interesting. 
Well, thank you for answering that one. The next one from Stephen is, uh, could you ask uh, Paula if the crash site in the new book is the same as the one Diana Pasulka referenced in her no, book, American Cosmic? No. She was on the one in Daddle, you know, and she was, and Jacques had been working on that too. That was in Daddle. No, no, that's a whole other city. No, no. And this is much more detailed than Diana Pasolka. She went down there blindfolded one time. This is nine years of, of going down there, <laughs> sleeping in, 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 you know, the Holiday Inn or whatever, <laughs> having dinner at the same place, knowing all these people. No, no. That was a very uh, superficial kind of thing, and it was in Daddle. This is somewhere. This is this is San Antonio. We said where it was. Next up from Graham, uh, how do you reconcile your nuts and bolts approach to the phenomenon with that of Jacques Vallée approaching from a consciousness point of view? How was that between both of you? Is that something you discussed a lot or you oh, differed God, in? Yes. No, it's the other way. I think Jacques has gotten more nuts and bolts. I'm consciousness. <laughs> it's the other way around. I mean, I'm all, Jacques says, calm down. Calm down. I said, but consciousness, what if it's, you know, like a manifestation? Calm down. Let's analyze the metal. (laughs) It's more the other way. It's more the other way. I have, that's why I work in Latin America now. I don't work in the States. Uh, I am very much a fan of Grant Cameron's, and he and I are walking the same path. I started with the, you couldn't start with more nuts and bolts than J. Allen Hynek. You couldn't start. That was like putting pins and maps. And not only that, but the the case, and Jacques told me this, the change Heineck's mind was a Zamora case because there, there was, you know, footprints and, you know, the thing, you know, made an indentation and all that. So I had to shift my thinking. And I am now thinking of what I keep reminding Jacques of. I said, Jacques, don't you remember you said this was a manifestation of consciousness to teach us a lesson? And then he goes back to the metal. I'm going up. It's like, okay, can you, but we're both on consciousness, but he is a, a scientist. This is a scientific book. He wants a scientific community to look at the method of research. He is very, very uh, serious about science. He's good at it. I've he was driving me nuts with, with the parts of it where he'd call me and say, "Okay, now call Jose and see how many wheels the 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 flatbed was." And I'd say, "What difference does that make?" And he'd go, "I have to get the ton, how many tons it was." And things like I would never do that. That that's the scientific part. So I said, "Who cares about how how many wheels the thing had?" And of course, Jose, who's watching the whole recovery for a week, remembers everything. So it was a joy, a collaboration to work with a scientist. Jacques Vallée is a consummate scientist. Final listener question from Dave. I've had to miss a loadout just given we're running out of time. Um, you've spent a lot of time with Colonel Philip Corso and Jacques Vallée. Have either of them ever alluded to how many crash events have occurred outside of the US from which materials have been obtained? No, but can I encourage people to get Ryan Wood's book, it's called Magic Eyes Only. It has 93 crashes. And and you have to start reading. I don't understand people. I read all kinds of material to, to get this. Uh, he's got enumerated. He's got the 1945 crash in there. Um, he even has the Kingman, Arizona crash, which is referred to with Dan Burrish 
You know, he has everything in there in that book. Uh, I don't know if you can get it anymore, but um, there have been crashes in other places of the world. And the one in Virginia, for me, is one of the most interesting. That's Virginia, Brazil, because the little beings were not like we shove people, greys, Nordics, and reptilians. The little, the ignorance of, of our way of, of researching is incredible. The Virginia case, and I did the, the work with Vittorio Pacaccini, who, who came to the United States, and we talked about it extensively in 1997, is a little red. Is he? He was looked like the, uh, he had three protuberances. He almost looked like the devil. He had red skin. They had red skin. They were little. And um, it, when they went to recover him, the Americans had taken out the craft, but the little being was cowering against the wall. And that's when the uh, the policeman Marco Cherise put him on it on his lap, took him to the hospital. And Marco Cherise died two weeks later of tumors because you can't just pick up a little being who might have some kind of biologic di- different. If people would read the Virginia case, that the Americans took out the craft because I think the deal is that w- that there is a deal where American America is the first one to, to do the crash retrieval. Don't ask me where the craft went or who hit or who's dealing with this right now. But when I was talking to Clifford Stone, he told me that one of the last crashes was in Georgia, you know, the state of Georgia. And I was going, you're kidding. And he goes, no, he, he says, and, and do they, then the next question is why do they crash? Well, who knows? Are they even like ours or theirs? And then you really get into it. You know, who is in there and who made it and all this. I have no definitive answers. But will people start using their brains and do some research? Okay. Paula, we'll finish off with a quick fire round. I've got a few things I would like you to touch on, as short or as long on each one as you want. The first one is your thoughts on Stephen Greer. He's the only one who walks his talk. He did the disclosure project. His heart is in the right place. Uh, I helped him with the, all the, uh, the military people in Italy. Um, the disclosure project opened the doors. Uh, and then I have been with him on the CE5s, and uh, I think his heart is in the right place. However, there's a lot of controversy there. Do you think he has ever faked any of those CE5 events? No, no, I've been on four of them. Oh, my God. I, I mean, watch the movie Serious. We were in Crestone in this huge – Crestone is the darkest place on Earth in Colorado. There's this huge UFO that came over and we were, that's the only time I've ever cried. Actually, it was over our heads and stayed there for a few minutes. I mean, this is after like an hour and a half of meditation. And then two F-16s came and chased it away. It just, it just went zip. And it's in the beginning of the film serious. It's in the beginning, the very beginning. You see it, then you see the F-16s come in. I don't think those pilots knew. The next, knew that they were going after a UFO. They were given coordinates. Uh, the next one is Skinwalker Ranch. Yeah, that's a paranormal. That should be studied. The, your thoughts on the Wilson Davis documents? I don't know anything about them. Do you believe they're real? How can I say that when I haven't read them, don't know anything about them? I don't know anything about them. Uh, do you prefer the term UFO or UAP? Oh, okay. 
you can name 50 million different, uh, you know, names for aerial phenomena. Uh, I don't use UFO very often. What do you like? Or UAP, I, you know, just craft, just craft. I mean, I don't, anymore, Andy, we can't tell if it's ours or theirs. So it's just craft. I don't know whose it is anymore. And the last one, Paula, is what does disclosure mean to you? Well, uh, because I have a master's in education, I, I'd like it to be uh, the study of uh, of the visitation on planet Earth and not call it disclosure. I mean, disclosure happened way back when. I, I, I've talked to the people not only in the 1945 case, but when they were alive, Walter Hott. I spoke to Walter Hodd. I spoke to Glenn Dennis, who was a mortician. These people are telling the truth. Where you know, I, if you bother to do it, it's not your opinion. It shouldn't be your opinion based on nothing. It should be a study where you go down and speak to the people, or you should read the original uh, material from the source. Read the original material, the source material. As a teacher, if you gave me a paper and you were quoting YouTube, I give you a D minus minus minus. You got to read something. You got to talk to somebody. I'd say pick up a phone. When anybody ever asks me about a case, I say pick up the phone. Talk to them. Go down there. Paula, it's been great speaking with you. I'll just let everyone know that Trinity, the best kept secret, co-authored by yourself and Jacques Vallée, is available now. And I would just ask people, if you're picking it up, consider supporting your local bookstores because they are obviously struggling during the pandemic and everything as well. But you all know where it's available and I'll put some links on the description as well. Thanks very much for your time, Paula. Thank you. And it's available on Amazon now so you can get it. (laughs) That'll be in the links, folks. Cheers, Paula. All right. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer. A little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Folk. The little fucker hovered right inside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little more Meditative game of fateful on meta. I can't imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like, you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. the window after the elf and I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head and everything was weird and everything was red and I helped out my boys they thought this was noise they thought it was a dream they thought it was my toys they thought it was my problems and they think I should take care of me and I don't know what it is because it doesn't really scare me if you really want to know who I 
Life can speak 